Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Murder Mile a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the cruel and senseless death of Charlie Chergwin, an innocent who wasn't stabbed, beaten or shot, but whose last hours alive were decided by rules, red tape and petty revenge. And yet Charlie would never know that, as he was only 14 weeks old. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 61, The Senseless Killing of Charlie Chergwin. Today, I'm standing in Short's Gardens, WC2, two streets east of the wife-beating baker, Alexander Moyer, one street southwest of the mysterious murder of the lonely spinster Daisy Wallace, and one street north of the unsolved murder of Russian Dora, coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated between Shaspi Avenue and Longacre, Short's Gardens is an odd one-way street at the back of Covent Garden used mostly as a cut-through by cabbies, brickies and Uber Eats. That pointless service for lazy feckless half-wits who are one step away from needing an app to wipe their own arse. Surrounded by a queasy excess of funky barbers, crazy cafes, flip-flop boutiques and possibly a falafel museum, this side of Short's Gardens staunchly refuses to evolve. It's a tree-lined street, lost in a 1970s time warp, with window boxes full of pampas grass, pavements full of white dog poo, and a laundrette full of old dears dreaming about the good old days of spam, rationing and syphilis. So if you think that prawn cocktail 
volavons and cheese cubes on sticks is the height of chic, then this place is for you. On the eastern corner of Shorts Gardens and Endell Street is Dudley Court, a six-storey brown-bricked block of flats with a convenience store on the ground floor, a mix of council and private flats above, and balconies full of bike bits, carpet cut-offs and part-dried underpants. Unlike most awful architecture, it was clearly designed by a clumsy child who had a seizure whilst playing with Lego. Now entirely demolished, on this site once stood the St Giles workhouse. A brutal, unforgiving place where the borough's sickest, poorest and most destitute were sent to work, to live and often to die. As it was here, on Thursday the 14th of November 1872, for the life and death a 14-week-old Charlie Chergwin was decided by a petty superintendent. Being just a baby, very little is known about Charlie. His mother's name was Eliza, but it could have been Elizabeth. She was possibly from Penzance, and was born sometime in or around 1847, making her 24 years old. But being one of London's forgotten paupers, her life was deemed too unworthy to record. So eking out a hand-to-mouth existence, and never knowing how she would feed her family from one day to the next, the only evidence we have of her pitiful little life is through the death of her baby boy. For Eliza, life was tough. As an only child, with both parents dead, her only family was a disabled aunt and a young cousin living in a cramped one-roomed lodging in Crown Street, Soho. Although illiterate, having worked since the age of five and trained as a waistcoat hand, with no income and no home of her own, her days were spent struggling to raise four pennies to pay for a night's lodging and begging to be admitted to the workhouse. So endemic was poverty in the 1800s that each borough within walking distance of Soho had its own workhouse, including the Strand Union and St Giles. Funded by the local council and managed by the church, although they were built to feed, clothe and shelter those less fortunate, the workhouse was more like a pauper's prison, where the impoverished were punished simply for being poor. As a last refuge for almost 800 people, each workhouse housed an unholy mix of the city's desperate, including the disabled, the diseased and the dying, the pregnant, the pitiful and the putrid, the imbeciles, the vagrants and the inmates, whether young or old, male or female, senile, or insane. The only difference being which ward you entered and how, if at all, you left. As the casual ward took in anyone too poor to pay for a night's lodgings, the workhouse was deemed a debtor's prison for those sentenced here by the court, and the infirmary was for the ill, the infectious, and the incurable. 
in long dark halls. Lines of pale expressionless faces sat in strict silence, forced to endure menial tasks like picking oakum. A thick twine hardened with black tar, so tough it made their fingers bleed, so hard it made their thumbs swell, for sixteen hours a day, and all to pay their keep. In return, their meals were a watery slop, their beds were old and lumpy, and their care was inhumane. But for many, this miserable little life was better than living on the streets. Age 19, Eliza gave birth to her first child, Mary, in the lice-infested filth of the St. Giles workhouse. Age 22, her second child, William, was born in the pitiful squalor of the St. Pancras workhouse. Age 23, Eliza married the child's father, William Gerard. And with the two, having decided to start a new life in America, for once... Eliza had high hopes and big dreams. But with her passage denied, as her new husband boarded the ship bound for Chicago and waved her goodbye, Eliza was left behind, clutching their few possessions, a seven-year-old girl, a four-year-old boy, and a large swelling in her belly. A few months later, living in abject poverty, her third baby was born in the cold and rancid filth of the St. Giles workhouse. A little baby boy, who she would call Charlie. Charlie was a happy baby, a cheeky little bundle of joy, who cuddled but cried very little. Although he was born a little undersized, being blessed with a loving mother, who only being slight herself, would sooner starve than see her children go without. Charlie was well fed. His tiny little limbs and chubby little belly wrapped in a thick layer of baby fat to protect him from the harsh winter ahead. As being raised in a workhouse, the life expectancy for a child under five was less than one in twenty. With no home, no money and no father, just three months into his short life, Charlie would be dead. But he wasn't starved, poisoned, or even beaten. No, the death of this quiet little boy would be even more senseless, even more tragic. And it was all because of a man called George Cannon. But he wasn't a maniac, a killer, or a sadistic paedophile. 33-year-old George Cannon had no criminal record, and although he claimed to be a good Christian, he had an unchristian attitude. Being short and portly, George was a haughty little jobsworth, who as assistant superintendent of the St. Giles workhouse, had just one job to do. To receive all voluntary submissions to the casuals ward, providing beds, warmth and food for mothers and babies. The rules were simple. If a space was free and the person wasn't rude or drunk, the bed was theirs. Except, feeling righteous, with an ounce of responsibility, George felt it was his divine right to decide who slept there, who ate there, and who stayed warm and dry. 
as his one job made him feel like a god over the poor. On the 17th of October 1872, Eliza arrived at the casuals ward of St Giles. One bed was free, but being tired, hungry and unsteady on her feet, George called the police claiming she was drunk. With the police unwilling to charge her, with no other option, he gave her a bed. But on his terms. By the morning, Eliza would have to pick a full half pound of oakum. Instead of sleeping, being gripped with worry, and with two young children at her side and a two-month-old at her breast, although her thumbs were badly blistered, she spent the night pulling apart coarse tarred rope, until weak with exhaustion, she nodded off. With the oakum unfinished, George put a black mark against her name, and Eliza and her children were booted out of St Giles. It may seem like a rather petty and even childish act, but this is where the senseless death of Eliza's little boy began, and one month later, he would be dead. The eight years prior had been the wettest on record, with the winter seeing a year's rainfall in just four months. The harvest was soggy, the economy was rough, and disease was rampant. With the weather bad, business was bad, and with her fingers bruised and blistered, as the nights barely rose above freezing, although broke, Eliza's hands shook so much she couldn't sew a button onto a single waistcoat. That week, little Charlie had a cold. It wasn't anything serious, just a sniffle and a cough which was on its way out, as his loving mother had swaddled him in long clothes and snuggled him next to her warm heaving chest as he suckled on her nourishing milk. On the night of Wednesday the 13th of November, with her cousin away, Eliza slept in the modest comfort of her aunt's one-roomed lodging on Crown Street in Soho. It wasn't much, but it was warm and dry. The next night, with her cousin back, and unable to scrape together four pennies for the night's lodgings, Eliza and her children headed out to the nearest workhouse, known as the Strand Union. Crown Street to Cleveland Street is half a mile. It should have taken no longer than 12 minutes. But with a fierce storm brewing, as Eliza battled to shield her babies from the stinging rain and bitter icy wind, protected from the cold but not the wet, their thick woolen clothes soon became sodden. Having left just after a quarter past six, Eliza arrived at 36 Cleveland Street at a quarter to seven. With log fires blazing, tea brewing, and a stew on the stove, the warmth of the Strand Union workhouse was welcoming, as the heat tingled their frozen limbs. Greeting them at the doorway, Mr Keller, the relieving officer of the Strand Union, stated that, as they stood there, dripping and shivering, with pools of water forming around their feet, it was as if someone had dragged them out of the Thames. 
and although the family was desperate, the news was not good. The wards were closed. With the casual ward shut and the workhouse locked down, even though the infirmary stayed open for the chronically ill, with none of them being sick, no beds were free. Thankfully, rules had been set which stipulated that any casuals the Strand Union could not accept would be received by the St Giles workhouse. And seeing Eliza and her babies as a priority, Mr Keller handed Eliza an order to confirm this. It read, To the master of the St Giles workhouse, admit Eliza Chirguin and her three children, Mary, William and Charles. Signed, G. Keller, Assistant Relieving Officer. With a signed order in her hand, a surplus of beds at St Giles, and being stone-cold sober, Eliza would have no problem finding shelter that night. Especially as George Cannon was very aware of the rules. Having received his orders four weeks prior, he sent a letter to the Board of Guardians. It read, I beg to inform you that I commenced last evening receiving casual paupers from the Strand Workhouse. Trusting that you will kindly take into consideration the extra amount of duty which I now perform, and that his salary increase would be forthcoming. I remain your obedient servant, George Cannon. Cleveland Street to Shorts Gardens is just shy of one mile. It should have taken no longer than 25 minutes. But battling a brutal headwind, icy blasts of arctic snow, and their soaked woolen clothes beginning to freeze on their shivering skin. Although they were forced to stop twice, hearing a familiar wheeze from Charlie's chest, Eliza ploughed on, desperate to get them all warm, dry, fed, and a bed. With their legs like lead, their faces flushed red raw, and the children's tears dangling like icicles. Even though they had barely one hour to reach the workhouse before the heavy wooden gates were shut, through strength and determination, Eliza arrived at the casuals ward of St Giles at half past seven. The doorbell clanged. The family waited. The gate unlocked. Stood before them, all short and portly, his beady little eyes like a blanket of fresh snow soiled by dog shit, his lips pursed like an old toothless hag sucking a lemon, and the hairs of his flared nostrils hanging like rows of unused nooses, illuminated by a single flickering candle, was George Cannon. Although a good few inches shorter than Eliza, peering along the length of his upturned nose, through spectacles which precariously perched on his nose's tip, he still managed to look down on her. As around his neck, a crucifix hung, as if Jesus himself would absolve him of his sins. Glaring at the bedraggled shadows, George nasally snorted, You want a night's lodging? As stood in the bitter icy rain, Eliza meekly stammered, Yes! Her lips too cold to form anything more 
as she handed him the order with a shivering hand. Snatching it, George slowly read all 22 words, a look of disdain at the letter which superseded his own mighty authority. All the while, his corpulent wife stood behind him, shoveling fistfuls of food into her fat, sweaty face. Holding the order by his fewest fingers, George huffed, Well, come in then. And as the ward's door opened, the warmth of the log fire, the smell of a hot meal, and a sense of relief swept over them. As for that night at least, Eliza and her family were safe. Or they should have been. To George Cannon, the name Eliza Chergwin wasn't synonymous with a struggling mum in dire need of his help. She was an obstinate insult on decent society, who had flatly refused his demand to pick a half-pound of oakum. And with a black mark against her name, this haughty little Jobsworth had one simple rule to abide by. If a space was free, and the person wasn't rude or drunk, the bed was theirs. As Eliza entered the gate, with her icy hands shaking, and her rigid lips too cold to properly say, Thank you. Being too weak to stand, Eliza stumbled a little. A single misstep over the base of the gate. George barked, Oh, you're drunk again, are you? Eliza pleaded, No, I'm not. But her pleas fell on deaf ears, as George decreed, Stand here, you drunken beast, and sent for the police. And as Eliza stood there, too meek to argue back, too weak to stand her ground, as her broken little family stood there crying, shivering in sodden frozen clothes, Charlie's little lungs began to rasp. At 8pm, PC Samuel Kemp was summoned to the St Giles workhouse to arrest an abusive drunk. With no drunk in sight, and the only obscenities spat by the seething superintendent and his abusive spouse, as Eliza cradled her weeping babies, a baffled PC Kemp asked, Mr. Cannon, you're surely not going to charge this woman with being drunk? George rebuked, I shall do so. Drenched himself, PC Kemp asked, But you're surely not going to send those children out on a night like this? To which George barked, I surely shall, and you will take them to the station. But PC Kemp flatly refused. Bristling with rage at the constable's impertinence, George spat, Fine, for failing to take charge, I shall report you. PC Kemp was a married man, with two children of his own, and unwilling to risk his career over something so trivial, he begrudgingly trudged the frozen family another quarter mile to Bow Street Police Station. George Cannon in tow, rubbing his hands with glee at his petty victory. With Bow Street being a police court, as was the rules, Eliza stood in the dock, 
Accused of the charge of being drunk and abusive, two screaming kids at her feet, a suckling baby at her breast. Seeing the charges unfounded, with PC Kemp on her side, and Inspector William Usher stating of Eliza, I never saw a more humble or harmless woman. As George vociferously argued about why this woman must be charged, the police took pity on the family, their fate at the mercy of this petty little man. And as the nasty little legs of George Cannon sped back to St Giles, throwing aside his papers and files to seek out a minor clause in an act of Parliament which decreed by law that they must charge her for the little-known crime of acquiring lodgings using a false name. The name in question being Gerard, her married name. As Inspector Usher fought Eliza's case, his sergeant fed the family with hot tea and toast. As they sat by the fire, Mary and William asleep, Charlie's chest now rattling. At 9pm, Inspector Usher had the family examined by Dr Mills, the police surgeon. Although cold and malnourished, Eliza, Mary and William were well, but Charlie was not. Being swathed in soaking wet wool and exposed to bitter winter winds for the last three hours, with his pale skin trembling, his tiny limbs icy cold, and the whistling of his little chest being a dire indication of bronchitis, Dr. Mills wrote an order admitting Eliza and her children to the nearest workhouse, outranking George Cannon. Accompanied by Constable Scott and clutching a doctor's order, Eliza and her babies were forced to slog another quarter mile through a torrent of freezing rain from the Bow Street police station until they returned back to the casuals ward of the St Giles workhouse. Once again, the doorbell clanged. Once again, the family waited. Once again, the gate unlocked. As stood before them, all short and portly, his arms folded like a locked gate, his nostrils flared like a furious bull, and his little beady eyes like full stops. George Cannon barked, She's not coming in here. She's drunk. As at his side, having lied to him, was the assistant surgeon of the workhouse. Being only a constable, incredulously, PC Scott asked, Where'd you take her in? But the answer was clear, as George sneered, No. With the nearest workhouse being the Strand Union, whose wards were shut, George snorted, Take her away then. As once again, he turfed the wet, cold and shivering family out into the darkness and with another one-mile slog ahead, before he slammed the gate shut on them forever, George retorted, Make her walk. She's more than able to. With Charlie weak and pale, as a matter of urgency, PC Scott held a horse-drawn carriage, and with the family huddled under a dry blanket, 
their shivering faces shielded by a canopy. They rode back to the Strand Union at 36 Cleveland Street, where their journey had begun. Seeing Charlie's pitiful state, Mr. Keller, the relieving officer of the Strand Union, took them straight to the infirmary. Eliza, Mary, and William were given dry clothes, hot tea, and warm beds. And as a rasping baby was attended to by nurses, broken with exhaustion, Eliza wept, "Bless you, God bless you all." Given just the basics that any human requires, food, warmth, and medicine, the little boy soldiered on for three more days. But with his lungs too weak, and unable to feed, on Sunday the seventeenth of November, eighteen seventy-two, fourteen-week-old Charlie Chergwin died. Examined by John Argus, medical officer of the Strand Union, he stated, although an undersized baby, his body was plump. His organs were healthy, and with his slight cold almost cleared, being exposed to a bitter winter wind, in wet clothes for four hours, Charlie had succumbed to bronchial pneumonia. George Cannon was tried on the 16th of December, 1872, at the Old Bailey, under the charge of manslaughter, which he denied, and pleaded not guilty. With emotions running high, Mr. Justice Quayne asked the jury not to allow feelings of humanity to run away with your judgment and make the prisoner a victim of the system, as the real offenders are those who had authorized to send paupers from one union to another, no matter what the weather. After a short deliberation, being certain that it was his selfish and petty actions. Which had exacerbated the baby's death. George Cannon was found guilty of manslaughter, and although the judge was eager that this act should be a warning to others, he sentenced him to prison for just twelve months. Eliza's baby had lived for less than three. Charlie Chergwin was a healthy little boy. And although raised in abject poverty, being blessed with a loving parent, against the odds, he may have survived. But the death of Charlie Chergwin was cruel and senseless. He was an innocent whose last hours alive were decided by rules, red tape, and the petty revenge on a mother who only wanted a bed for her babies. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget Murky Milers. Stay tuned for extra goodies after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Mums and Murder and Murderific. Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Mums and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. 
despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, Dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime, like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I... <laughs> I can make it happen for you. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you <laughs> So beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbor suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by... An owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found. Check out the murderific true crime podcast hosted by Bernadette from the state of Maine. Topics will include some seriously true scary stories about serial killers, mass murderers, familicides, the missing, and unsolved cases. Go to www.murderific.com to start listening now or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until then, we will be executing podcasts one crime at a time. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Graham Sillers, Stella Singer, Tina Cortland, Barbara Johnson, and Suzanne Fox. With a thank you to old patrons and returning patrons who are enjoying the new goodies, such as location videos, crime scene photos exclusive to Patreon, a weekly ebook of the unedited Murder Mile scripts, and a handwritten thank you card from me with Murder Mile badges, stickers, and an official Murky Miler badge. Ooh! A big thank you also this week to Molly, Aaron, and the gang from the University of Idaho who booked a private Murder Mile walk. It was lovely to meet you all, and thank you for being amazing. Next week's episode is a two-parter, and you will receive both parts that day, so don't delete one of them thinking it's a mistake. It's a very different episode to what you're used to, so get ready. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ooh. Ba, ba, da, da, ba, ba, ba. Hello everyone, welcome to uh, Extra Mile. Oh, I forgot what it is called then. I'm going to go up and put on my tea. Hang on, I've got to open the windows and the doors. Oh dear, windows open. Door open, here we go. Whoa. I'm up nice and early today. Um, and I'm right, right next to a busy road. I wanted to make sure that I was recording before everyone started coming out. Uh, luckily there was only police cars, because I'm in Hackney, and Hackney, obviously, you know. <laughs> lot, lots of police needed in Hackney, because there's lots, lots of excitement, lots of excitable people. Uh, so there's lots of police cars going past, and there's, there's a man going past who obviously has a very loud motorbike, and he likes the fact that his motorbike is loud. Ugh, so, but that wasn't too bad. Uh, it wasn't a difficult record. So how are you all? Are you all good? Uh, just putting on my tea. Hang on. Uh, tea. And have an Earl Grey. Earl Grey tea. There we go. Coming back. Right. Tea on door open. Oh, so, uh, yes. Oh, hang on. this is Extra Mile. For new people, this is Extra Mile. This is the bit afterwards where I explain a lot of things that are in the show that you might not know about the, about the episode. Uh, and it's unedited. Uh, I'll go off and make a cup of tea if I have to. I'll open the doors if I have to. Sometimes people knock on my boat and have a conversation with me and I have to go and speak to them. Uh, that happened on the last one, but I edited that out because I redid the audio because the audio was awful. Uh, but this, I think, will be okay. I think. I think. Microphone was on. Good. I just checked then. Right. So. Uh, how, where am I? Right. On the boat. Recording today. I'm up early because... I've got to get to the dentist at two o'clock. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I've broken one of my teeth. One of the ones at the back. It's really annoying. I woke up one morning and was like, what am I eating? What did I eat last night? It feels like I'm eating, I've been eating eggs, but I ate the shell as well. And then I checked and I realised I'd broken a tooth. Which is really annoying. My dentist did say last time, he said, ooh, that tooth at the back is a bit like eggshells. And yeah, so I've got to go in at two o'clock and get that fixed. And... At the same time, recovering from a police going past. I'm in Hackney. That happens like every five minutes. Really does. Uh, um, uh, about ten days ago, I, I was moving the boat and I was putting it through a lock. Uh, so a lock is, in case you don't know, you can look at them online, canal locks. It's basically... Uh, um, there's a difference between um, a height... Oh, 
can't even explain it today. I'm so tired. It literally is. It's, it's where you can put in your boat and it goes down. And have a look. Have a look on the internet. I don't need to explain it. Anyway, I was getting off the lock. I was moving the boat. I slipped. Uh, my left foot was uh, uh, 45 degrees, the wrong angle that it should have been. And I kind of landed on it awkwardly. And I thought, oh, oh that hurts a bit. And then I walked on and thought, oh, do you know, it's not broken at all. I'm still walk on it. It's not fractured. So I thought, that's fine. So I moved the boat through the lock and then I moved it through two or three more locks. And then as I got to the fourth lock, I was like, oh, look at that. That's swollen. That's my ankle. It was almost as if someone had put a big donut around my ankle. It was huge. So I pulled it through two more locks because I was in the middle of a, a, a step lock. You know, you can't moor up anywhere between it. I had to get it through. I got it through, moored up the boat. And then the next day... I looked at my ankle and I went, oh dear, it was huge. And I'm going to just get my tea. Uh, the next day, all of the, the swelling around the ankle had shifted. Um, it had shifted to, uh, all, all down the foot. So uh, the foot had gone really, really squishy, which is really horrible. When you kind of move on it, you could hear all the liquid inside squishing around. So I knew it was sprained because it was squishing. Courtesy of Sherlock episode in Sherlock where they explain about, about spray difference between sprains and breaks and fractures that was very useful uh, <laughs> um, and then my foot was started to go really swollen and uh, black and bruised in places uh, so I've spent about 10 days with my feet up so I cancelled one of my murder miles uh, just basically spent a week with my uh, feet in an ice bag. Oh, luckily I'm very near to a big supermarket, so I can just get out and grab a bigger ice. But it's almost fixed now. I actually have shaped my feet now. Before it was just it was like a block of fat. It was all just swollen. Oh, it's horrible. Now it's just a bit black in places. So, but there we go. Almost fixed. So, oh, and at the same time, I decided to wean myself off diet coke. I don't really have a diet coke problem but i always have one a day it was like i either can or one of those little bottles not the big ones i'm not an idiot uh one of those little ones uh but i decided to wean myself off it because i was thinking oh i don't want to you know sometimes you can get the headaches off it so i did i weaned myself off it i was like right no diet coke today and then at lunchtime the headaches started and it's three days of headaches if you drink a diet coke every day you just have one and you think i'm not addicted to diet coke give it a go try and quit diet coke for five days and I guarantee you, you'll be like, oh my God, I am an addict. Because your brain, your brain, because of the aspartame, your brain will just go, I need my Diet Coke fix. It's hard. But it, 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 the th- first three days are really difficult. But after that, you get through it. The, the, your, uh, the addiction stops. Uh, and then it's okay after that. So now it's great. Now I can go into shops and not have to pick up a Diet Coke. Uh, and I haven't replaced it with anything else, which is good. Diet Coke's bad for you anyway. It's just, it's just chemicals isn't it anyway so that that was my week that was all good oh and i had another good week as well we went to uh we went to a lovely play at the coach and horses coach and horses is a really nice pub in soho or it was but fuller's arseholes uh of uh they've taken over the pub it used to be an independent old pub it's been there for like 300 years it's really famous loads of plays were written there do you know it's really famous um the Fullers are taken over, and they're going to turn it into a gastro pub or some shit like that. But Coach Noises is a really good, decent boozer. It's 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 a pub just down from where I finished my walk, and we went there the other day to watch uh, Jeffrey Bernard is unwell. Uh, it's a very famous play. It was originally uh, performed by Peter O'Toole. John Hurt did it. John Hurt, 
I was getting it wrong. John Hurt did it. Uh, we went to see it performed by Robert Bathurst. But it's it's good because that that play is written in that pub. It's performed in that pub, so it was nice to see it in where it's meant to be. Joe, you know, the character wakes up in the pub, and it, and basically all the staff have gone and he's he's trapped there all night. But they performed it in the pub. It was really good. So we went to see that performed by Robert Bathurst. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it I think it would have finished, which is a shame. You could have gone to see it, but you didn't. But it was very good, very good. So, whew, that's some early waffle out of the way. I've got my tea on the go. Oh, slurp, very nice. No cake. I ran out of cake. Uh, I'm going to go and get some shortly. Mm. Had some nice lemon cake from Asda. Mm. Normally, Asda don't do very good cakes, but their their lemon lemon loaf is very good. Very good. Very soft. Anyway, right. Um, this case, where did it come from? This was... There we go. People are going past in a boat, and they're not looking where they're going. They're taking selfies. Happens a lot around here. Oh, dear Lord. Um, anyway, this case, the, the case of Eliza Chergwin, or Charlie Chergwin, as, as the case is really about the baby. Um, this was one of those cases that I knew about ages ago. Originally, um, this was going to be uh, a story that I was going to do on the tour when I was uh, building up stories of what I could do on the walk. Uh, but when I did the research, it was interesting, but when I did the research, it was slightly out of the area that I do the walk on, because I don't really do it on a quarter mile, I do it on like a, I think it's like a third of a mile, third of a mile square I do on the walk, so it was a little bit too far to walk out to, and also I didn't feel that it was right for the tour, because it's not really a, a kind of a murder, you want to kind of get your serial killers in, and your spree killers and stuff like that on the, on the walk. And when I was doing the podcast, I, th- I kept thinking to myself, mm, it's not right for the podcast either, because it's another one of those ones that's not really a murder, is it? There's no real true crime in it. But it was one of those ones I had on my list for ages, uh, just like Glyndor Michael, so the homeless guy who, you know, um, died by eating a, a, a poisoned piece of bread. And then he was the guy who went on and, you know, is the reason why D-Day was successful. And, you know, he's the reason why we're all still alive today. Uh, and then the other story was the, the Alexander Moyer one, the, the brutal baker who beat, who beat his wife to death. Those were all stories that I didn't feel would fit right in Murder Mile in the podcast. But when I did them... There was like a really good reaction from everyone. Everyone kind of liked it. I think because they're really nice human stories. And, you know, it doesn't... True crime stories don't need to be man with an axe cutting off heads and all shit like that. You know, it doesn't need to be sensational. I think the smaller they are, the more human they are, the more interesting they become. Because it's you're less focused on how did someone murder this other person. You're more interested in, in them as a human being. And that's... And that's what I try to do with Murder Mile, I make very human stories as opposed to tabloid sensational rubbish. So uh, so, uh, so that's why I did this one. This has been on the cards for a little while and then I, I decided, do you know what, let's do it. Let's put this one in. Um, and I quite like it. It's, it's quite a tragic story. Uh, and again, not murder, it's, it's, it's a manslaughter technically, even though the judge technically was trying to... Um, he, I'll explain it later on, but actually the, the judge was sitting down with, with the jury and saying to them, do you know, um, you need to decide who's on trial here. Is it George Cannon who's on trial, or is it the system that's on trial? Is it the Board of Governors who made the decision to be on trial? And he is right that it was an, a crazy system that they did say, 
do you know, um, if this workhouse is open, then we'll send people to the other workhouse. But even like this, as I said at the start, this was eight years of torrential rain in London. This is one of the worst weathers they had. It was the start of winter. The other workhouses, they, weirdly, they never explained why the casuals ward and the workhouse was shut even in the court documents and they even mention it in there as well saying there was no explanation why it was shut which is weird uh but anyway so so yeah the the system was on trial as well um i thought this was a difficult uh case to research because we only really have uh the court documents to do with the murder of charlie to go with it uh for Eliza and her family, um, really difficult to get any information on her. Obviously, according to the court documents, her name was Eliza Chirguin. So that was her birth name. Uh, she may have been called Elizabeth because Eliza was a shortened version of Elizabeth, although that could have been her middle name as well. It could have been the name she went by. We don't have her accurate name. Chirguin is a, quite an interesting name. Eli Unfortunately, Eliza and probably, as you know, it's George, are two of the most popular names in the mid-18th century or mid-1800s. Uh, so that made it difficult to find her. There is a, a family called Chirguin. Uh, most of them originate from around Penzance, around the mid-1850s, so we kind of assuming that, that that's where she comes from, but we don't actually know that. We don't know her accurate date of birth. We know that she was 24. She could have been 23 or she could have been 25, which makes it really difficult. No um, details about her parents, so it is believed that they died, but none of that. Uh, we don't know fully. Uh, there's no marriage certificate between her and her husband, uh, we're unsure of the correct spelling of her husband because it's only uh, it was transcribed in the court documents, which makes it difficult. So again, his first name might not have been William. It could have been his middle name. A lot of people use their middle name instead of their first name. And his surname was Gerard. It could be Gerard or Gerard. And there's multiple spellings of Gerard. And we don't know how old he is. Uh, I checked the shipping manifests for between... Um, Obviously, around the time after she supposedly got married to him and the death of uh, baby Charlie, that supposedly is around the time that he left for Chicago. And I checked the shipping manifest and I can't find anyone called Gerard uh, going to America. And he definitely went to America. She said he went to Chicago, although that could be wrong. So that makes his life really difficult. What happened to her? We also don't know that as well. Um she may have died in the workhouse it's highly likely don't forget she was she was a woman it was the mid 1800s chance of her dying in childbirth was pretty high i mean the chance of her children surviving uh, it's it's amazing that she got three two or two that actually survived up until that point of the story she may have had more children we don't know uh but these are the only ones that we know about we don't know their fate either uh i did a search uh, couldn't find anything on them so it's it's but as i said at the start you know they're poor people um very little is written about their lives until unless something really tragic happens that's the only time that we really find details about them Whew. so uh details about the buildings there's two buildings in here Oddly, one of them I keep going past all the time, and I keep looking at it thinking, oh, I'm ho I hope there's something interesting there. Okay, so the first one was the Strand Union Workhouse. Uh, part of it still exists. It's on 36 Cleveland Street. Um, it's not being used anymore. For years, it kind of went through phases of being... I'll put some pictures online. I'll put I'll put uh, 
if you go on to any of my social media accounts, you'll see... Uh, I'm saying this now, but I haven't done it yet. But by the time you listen to this, hopefully I will have done it. Um, there'll be some videos online, so you can see what they look like now, and I can do some comparison shots so you can see what it originally looked like. The, the Strand Union, where uh, originally she was rejected because it was closed, and then uh, when she came back, uh, Charles... Uh, was taken into the infirmary and that's where he died at Cleveland Street that's still there today um it's it's been listed very recently it looks horrible at the moment it's protected by uh, uh guardians at the moment they're keeping an eye on it because it's an old crumble crumbling old building but they're trying to convert it into something else uh it's in Fitzrovia so just north of Soho um and it's just in the shadow of the BT Tower um, but it was used for years. It's like a four-story building uh, with two wings on it. It looks very old. It looks very kind of brutalist. Uh, but it went through years. This used to be what the, uh, they called the Middlesex Hospital. Uh, so I think I've mentioned that a couple of times. There were a couple of um, characters in there who were taken there. Um, uh, on the Charlotte Street robbery, so Alex Alex Antiquis. Uh, who was shot by the robbers that's where he was taken so that's uh, i mentioned that so that is literally about three streets away from charlotte street so we're not too far away but people walk past it all the time and they look at it and they don't know that it's the old strand workhouse but it is it's it's gone through many guys it used to be a hospital up until about 20 years ago but they shut it down um there's two wings on it and you can walk in there's a main kind of courtyard it's uh, there's entrance gates on either side to so the, the casuals ward on the left and then the workhouse ward on the right um, it accepted male and female there was no delineation between male and female it was basically the poor were poor and basically you went in um, uh, casuals as I mentioned was you could literally walk in there and say I can't afford to pay my lodgings for the night and they, if they had a space they'd make a space for you the workhouse was you were you were sent there by the courts so if you couldn't afford to look after your kids or you couldn't afford to, you know, if basically uh, you were deemed unfit, then you were sent to the workhouse for a period of time. Um, cool, that was good timing. There's uh, a rubbish truck just pulled up just in front of me. So now there's going to be a lot of noise. Great. Uh, I had a look for I had a look for the auntie's house, so um, I was trying to find more about Eliza and her family, and I thought, well, she's got an auntie and a cousin there, so I'll search. Uh, unfortunately, we don't know the auntie's name. She's only ever re- referenced as auntie, and the other one's referenced as cousin, which is always useful. Um, they lived on Crown Street. Uh, now, Crown Street doesn't exist anymore. None of the buildings exist because Crown Street is on the border of Soho and what would be St Giles uh, the the borough of St Giles just to say that St Giles the workhouse is named after the borough it's in so it's the St Giles workhouse Uh, but between both of those boroughs Soho uh, well Soho is technically St Anne's um, uh, and St Giles is what we now call Charing Cross Road Charing Cross Road originally if you look at it it's quite wide but originally it wasn't it was two, two streets it was Crown Street and Hogs Lane and what they did was they demolished both of those streets to make Charing Cross Road. But if you're ever in Soho, uh, if you're uh, almost knocked over the mic, if you go to the uh, the Harry Potter, what's it called, the play that's on at the moment that everyone queues up and gets excited about outside, um, just up from there, in the middle of the road, there's kind of some grates in the middle of the road. And if you look down into the grate, you can still see Hogs Lane. It's still there, and that's because. 
it, if you look at Charing Cross Road, it's on an angle. It goes down from Leicester Square at the bottom to uh, the start of Oxford Street. Uh, yeah, start of Oxford Street, Tottenham Court Road at the top. But it goes in an incline. Um, but originally it was like a really horrible step at the top and they didn't want that. So what they did was they made, made a kind of an incline instead of a, st- a step on the road. Uh, so what they did was they built on top of... Uh, Hogs Lane and Crown Street so if you look through the grating you can still see the streets there they just built on top of it it's really interesting there's like still a street sign there and it's like it's like it's like an old street that's still they're hidden away so it's quite interesting might not be interesting to you you might look at it and go that's shit um anyway um some pieces that were in there um some pieces obviously I didn't use in the story but uh, in the court documents they obviously spoke to uh, James Rankley and James Rankley was the master of the St Giles workhouse so he was George Cannon's boss um, and he said uh, it is the practice of the casual ward to take off the wet clothes of the paupers and to furnish them with dry clothes until their own have been dried Uh, if a constable in uniform brings a person to the workhouse such a person must be admitted um, the the presence of a constable is is equivalent to an order. The certificate the constable brought to the workhouse, signed by the divisional surgeon, was unnecessary to procure admission, but obviously it was a double up. So they got the constable, and they got the divisional surgeon. So, so by rights, Eliza should have been admitted, no matter what. So she should have been admitted first, because they had the order from the Strand workhouse, but obviously George Cannon said no, she was drunk, which she wasn't. Uh, and then they got the police uh, surgeon's order, uh, but he decided to supersede it. Uh, James Rankley, who was the master of the St Giles workhouse, said he was not made aware of any of this until three hours later, so that was about midnight. Um, death of Charles. Uh, <coughs> they said that about five o'clock he became very restless, he coughed. Uh, he had a wheezing in his chest uh, about uh, on, on the Friday so the next day in the morning uh, the doctor turned up and, and subscribed medicine for it we got the doctor's report coming up shortly uh, that was actually the same guy who did the uh, the autopsy on the baby as well uh, he was given medicine and poultices were applied on Saturday the baby became worse and by Sunday at 4.30 doesn't say AM or PM it died um, let's just whiz through that bit uh, so John Angus a uh, member of the Royal College of Surgeons um, licensed uh, li- tate of the Apothecaries Company company uh, a medical officer of the strand union on friday morning the 15th of november between 10 and 11 o'clock that's the next day i saw the deceased child it was suffering from the effects of cold i ordered linseed poultices to be applied both to the back and front of the child i i prescribed so that's obviously um like a decongestant and uh um to the menthol thing to, to try and clear his system obviously this is you know this is mid 1850s so you know medicine really isn't that really isn't hugely advanced they're just doing everything they can but this this child is you know pneumonia his chance of survival is slim at best if at all uh and i prescribed medicine for it on saturday it had become much worse i last saw him alive on saturday after its death I love how they could always say it. Uh, by direction of the conor- conor- co- coroner, uh, I made a post-mortem examination. I can't speak anymore. Uh, when I found that the child had suffered from bronchial pneumonia, which I believe was the cause of death. 
I believe from the state of the child when I first saw it that the inflammation had not existed for more than a day. So it was actually exacerbated. It hadn't had pneumonia prior to the Thursday, but it had. the baby had had a cold. See, I'm saying it as well. Informing my opinion, I took the account at all circumstances of the case i found the organs excepting the lungs in healthy condition i've been a surgeon for 30 years um, the longer the exposure of the child such as the greater the danger that's almost english uh, if at the time it had a slight cold exposure would still be more dangerous to keep a ch to keep a child in wet clothing from seven to half past eight or quarter to ten would have a tendency to shorten its life if it had been suffering from a cold if it had been suffering from a cold keeping it in wet, wet clothes and exposed to damp air were calculated to produce the disease which i found making the post-mortem exam examination uh, when cross-examined in court he said if a child was suffering from a cough and was carried through the pouring rain for three quarters of an hour that would tend to produce a disorder uh, as that of which this child died so so that's kind of the reason why at the start that the judge was saying you know because it took roughly three quarters of an hour to get from well it took it took about half an hour to get from the strand sorry uh the aunt's house over to the strand union and then it took another 45 minutes to get from the strand union to st giles so that is technically just over an hour uh so with the doctor there saying do you know 45 minutes could be enough to kind of exacerbate the the child's condition that's why there was kind of saying is it really the system that's at fault or is it george that's at fault Obviously, with this story, I focused on George because I felt that his actions were uh, were really quite petty and bitter. But you know, it is the fault of the system as well. the The system should have said, you know, if if a woman with a baby turns up and it's absolutely pissing down and the child's just had a cold, is it really sensible to send a family out in the freezing cold and rain so they can get? you know drenched and then go and get dry or is it kind of better just to say do you know what we're not open tonight but come in sit by the fire for an hour hopefully hopefully the rain will piss off for a bit if not we'll give you a bed you know but there we go so that was that case hope you enjoyed that that was interesting um got listeners questions here do you know what i haven't even read them so i really should have done it uh rate listeners questions from matt casey so thanks for matt um two questions so the first one was what is your whole take on the news that Jack the Rip that that the Jack the Ripper suspect was identified by DNA? So uh, if you look at this, if you look, uh, this was uh, people keep reposting this on all the true crime sites, and everyone thinks it's it's topical, and it's not topical. This happened years ago, but you know that's the problem with the internet. People recycle the same old shite. Uh, what they did recently was someone said. Um, They'd got a shawl that belonged to Mary Kelly, I believe, who was, uh, I believe she was one of the fifth canonical, canonical victims. Could be wrong. I haven't got more details in front of me. Uh, and they said they got her shawl. Uh, there was blood on it. They tested the DNA and it linked to, I believe it was Kosminski, uh, uh, the, the the Polish suspect, which a lot of people say is, or oh, they they reckon it's like the number one suspect. Okay, and everyone's excited about it. They're going, we got DNA evidence about Jack the Ripper. Right, 
here's my here's here's my take on this and i've spoken with two detective chief inspectors about this i've also spoken to um people who are ripper specialists on this uh, and this is the problem with this this theory okay one this shawl that belonged to mary kelly it wasn't put into evidence in 1888 which is the original year it was put into evidence 10 years later so there's no evidence that it was her shawl at all okay literally we have a family member saying it was mary kelly's shawl and you know it's it's got blood on it it's like is it her shawl we don't know that we don't know that at all secondly and this is the most important one how can you get dna off a shawl that's 100 almost 140 years old which hasn't been put in a in, in a protective bag hasn't been sealed anywhere like modern dna would be if you look at any of the murder investigations if you if, if say you're drinking a cup of tea and you hold your cup of tea you've got your dna on the cup of tea right but if someone else comes along and picks up the cup of tea uh and drinks from it their dna supersedes your dna and it's a it's a mixed profile so you won't get one dna you'll get two dnas if someone else does that you get three dnas and what you're dealing with here is a shawl which for a hundred more than 140 years has never been in a sealed bag has never been protected basically every dickhead in the world who has an interest in the case has come along and picked up the shawl and go oh look the shawl so how many people have touched it hundreds how many people's fluid is on it probably hundreds so how, how can we say that that's Jack the Ripper's DNA? How can we prove that there's one DNA on it? There's not. There'll be hundreds. The police's DNA will be on it. The original pathologist's DNA will be on it. It's So it's not possible at all. And also, how can you say that's Jack the Ripper's DNA? Not possible at all, unless you believe it was Kosminski. Which many people do, but you know what? I've spoken to uh, many Ripper specialists on this, and they say, of the canonical five which people keep believing is true they keep saying oh it has to be a canonical five because people are so desperate to believe that there was the, those five victims but people they their evidence changes depending on which suspect they feel is most accurate some people believe there's four victims some people believe there's six some people believe there's ten victims I've spoken to some uh ripper specialists uh, one of whom who actually lectures on jack the ripper and she actually said that uh, with the evidence that there is at the moment they would say that there's Jack the Ripper was likely to have had two victims or possibly one so the likelihood of there being the Jack, uh, Jack the Ripper at all is just it's bullshit but you have to say as a piece of storytelling it's amazing because it's lasted 140 years what other murderer are we still talking about 140 years later do you know so so that's my take on it obviously some of you out there may be oh no Jack the Ripper definitely exists fine if you believe in that fine go with it I think it's complete and utter horseshit I think it's an absolute fabrication. If you look at all the murders that happened in that era around the same time, they're not unique. They're, they're, there wasn't just five murders that happened and then a man ran away into the shadows going, whoa, oh, 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 like that. It's, it's, if you look prior to Jack the Ripper and post Jack the Ripper, the murder of prostitutes in the East End of London, there's a lot of it going on. But all these murders that happened after him, not mentioned no one gives a shit everyone the the the, pre, the tabloid press were excited about it because it was a way to draw in working class people into their newspapers this was the birth of tabloid newspapers they needed something to draw people in and the murder of doctors or politicians really wasn't no one gave a shit anymore they wanted something that was local to them murder of prostitutes was fantastic they worked the press worked out it was a great way to make a sensation the ripper letters 
the Dear Boss letters, even the experts agree at the moment that these were written by the press. These were fabrications to draw people in, right? So Jack the Ripper is a, is a character. He never said, I am Jack the Ripper. This is just a man who's murdering. He didn't sit down and go, do you know what? I'm going to put on a cloak and a top hat and I'm going to run around the streets and I'm going to call myself Jack the Ripper. Murderers don't do that. Murderers murder. That's their priority. That's what they do. But it's highly likely that these weren't the work of a serial killer. If you look at them, they're probably, you know, crimes of passion, crime, uh, robberies that have gone wrong. Or just, just someone with a grudge, you know. They're all very simple murders. There's nothing really exceptional about them, except you know, the, the, the final one that we all know about. But that that very much is a crime of passion, that is. So, I don't know. If you believe in Jack the Ripper, fine. But I just think I just think there's more important murders out there that we could be uh, investigating. Jack the Ripper just takes up too much time. Ugh. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Second question from Matt. Sorry, that was a, that was a long answer. Second question from Matt. Uh, please don't email me with your theories about Jack the Ripper. Please, I'm just not interested. I will de- I I will delete your email. I I swear. I know. I always read everyone's email, but if your email is titled Jack the Ripper or it has Jack the Ripper in it, I'm going to delete it. I really do apologise. Just not interested in Jack the Ripper at all. Although I have to say that book that's out recently called The Five. Uh, what's her name? the uh historian who did it she does she always does a really amazing job go and check out the five it doesn't do what everyone else does which is talk about oh who is jack the ripper do you know oh i want to know who the murderer is do you know that sensational bullshit that everyone loves she's done it properly she sat down and she went don't give a shit who jack the ripper is who are these women and she takes the canonical five and she goes through their history and it's fascinating it really is it really throws into perspective the difference between what the press say the bullshit that's out there already that people who read these Jack the Ripper books go, oh, yeah, the, the Ripper, oh, I love who the Ripper is. Um, when you read her book, you go, oh, my God, these, you know, she brings the women to life. She makes them real. And when you read it, the murder becomes entirely irrelevant because their lives are entirely fascinating. And they're not five prostitutes, as most of these books say. She dives into their history about what, you know, where they come from, what they're about. It's fascinating. So, check it out. It's called The Five. Uh, sorry, Matt. Second question. Core, dear, this is going on a bit, isn't it? Uh, Matt's question. Seeing as the scope of your geographic location, th- I got a burp again, uh, that you focus on is a small area. Obviously, Matt doesn't say it this way. Do you ever come across the same individuals over multiple cases? I know that you mentioned the pathologist. Spilsbury a few times but do you ever come across the same witnesses in multiple cases that you are studying uh it's interesting people do crop up every so often uh not really witnesses um but obviously we get the same people uh especially with uh oh oh god my brain is gone brain is totally gone this morning cup of tea with the police especially so um Obviously, we've got uh, Frederick Cheryl, who's the the uh, fingerprint specialist, who was kind of, uh, you know, he even around the nineteen forties with the Blackout Ripper, he was doing all of his own fingerprinting. Um, he wouldn't get his team, and he'd literally, if there was a murder scene, he'd come in to make sure he's doing it himself. Obviously, we've got Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the pathologist, the father of forensic science. Uh, I'm hoping across. Um, we've already had some Sir Bernard Spilsbury cases. There will be. I think there's another two in this season. 
um, and then we will do some more next season and what my plan is see I'm giving away the plan this is really stupid but there we go what the plan is is I'm going to do a kind of a story about Sir Bernard Spilsby about his life and what the idea is is that you you will go you'll remember all of the other stories and you can re-listen to them if you like and it's about Spilsby it's about his evidence and i'm not going to say any more than that uh we also get in the the later series we get professor keith simpson uh who was the pathologist he was just he was after spilsbury uh my screen went off uh and he actually picked up on a lot of the mistakes that spilsbury did so he's no he's a fantastic um uh pathologist as well he worked in the same area really good book uh about him about his pathology as well uh there's a lot of the same detectives as well especially in the 1970s um i can't remember their names off the top of my head uh other people that we'll see in the same cases the messina brothers i mentioned those in uh, the ginger ray episode uh they were the pimps who ran soho in the 1930s 1940s they came in at around the same time as dutch Lair as well uh i'm still doing bits and pieces about the machine as they may crop up again i think i don't know uh but that but but in in terms of witnesses um not really not really at the moment but but it's all it's all interesting is it i don't know cool i ran out of steam then did you hear me i just anyway uh if you have any questions not about jack the ripper if you have any questions uh just wisdom to me f- feel free uh probably best to email me some people do um message me on uh instagram i st- i still have no idea how to use instagram pro- properly apparently the, the there is an inbox there and some people have messaged me and i just forget it's like it's not obvious to me that it's there so like three months later i go oh look there's some messages in my instagram i don't read the inbox on instagram at all if you have any questions, email me. My email address, mmiletours at gmail.com. You can go onto my website, it's everywhere. Whew, good, that was that. Oh, right, and now I've got to sit down and edit this. I'm going to whiz through it, edit it, and then go off to the, the dentist and have my uh, have my face pulled apart. That'll be fine, it'll all be good. Anyway, that was the episode for today. Hope you liked it. As mentioned, um next week's episode so next week's episode is the two-parter that i originally pulled out this was the two-parter that i was going to open the series with but i they're very different it's not so today's episode and last week's episode the last four episodes you've had have all been ones about uh where i've made you sympathize with the character and their plight and then they get murdered and then we you know then we go into the case and you know hopefully hope, hopefully there's some tears in there somewhere next week's episode it's very clear from the start i make it very clear i've put a little warning at the start you won't sympathize with anyone at all you won't like anyone all of them are assholes person person gets murdered meh who really cares but that's not what it's about what it's about is how police are faced with a situation like a murder investigation and, and on, on the face of it you look at it and you go well this must be easy to solve there's 40 people in a room in a room that's about as big as someone's living room one person gets shot four times and stabbed and you go well well everyone must have seen him and what i do is i go through it very meticulously so this is this is one of those episodes where we're not going to focus on on uh, the emotion of it. We're not going to focus on sympathy. Literally, we're going to focus on it, and we're going to go through every single bloody detail. And 
it's hard work i will say it now but it's but it's very different to anything i've done before it's exhausting uh, so and this is also why it's two party going out at the same time because there's no emotional involvement from you in the story or from me as well there's no reason for you to come back next week to see what happened that's why i'm doing both parts at the same time uh so you do one part there'll be an extra mile at the end it'll be the original extra miles that are recorded uh back in april when the episode was ready i explained that anyway and then it'll be the second part where we do the unraveling of the investigation and how the police managed to solve it uh so it's really interesting but just get ready it's very different to anything that's ha- that we've done before Whew, right that was murder mile that was extra mile hope you enjoyed that more episodes to come all good uh planning the season across the year and then we will have some uh we'll have some mini miles as well so that's good so uh hope you enjoyed that uh i'm off to edit this and i edit this This is gonna take like three days to edit uh and then uh i'll go to the dentist as well all joy so that was good hope all is well and have yourself a good week bye bye Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.